Welcome again to the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. As always, this is David. I'm here with my buddy Chris, and we are in uh, Midtown Memphis this week at uh, Chris's house. And a familiar guest is with us, our buddy Caton Brooks from the uh, Glam Metal episode is back. Caton, thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks for letting me join you guys. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're happy you're here too. Uh, Chris, I'm going to throw it to you. You have a new album you want to tell everybody about, and then you're going to introduce our special guest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we always try to bring new music on here, you know, any anytime we can. And so I wanted to make mention of a new album by the Misfits guitarist, Doyle. It's called, uh, I'm called Doyle 2, and now I'm, I've, I've lost track of the name of the album. Anyway, it's the second album by Doyle, and it is... It's more in the vein of, uh, if you're a Misfits fan, if you like the second version with Michael Graves on vocals, it's a lot like that. It's it's a little bit more metal than it is punk. It's a great, great record though. Again, if you're a Michael Graves era Misfits fan, check it out. The new record by Doyle, um, just awesome, awesome record. So, as we go on with this, we're, uh, you know, David, you and I have talked about, we talked about it on last week's show, we're going to do something a little bit different this week. You know, we talk about different music topics, and we were saying that today's going to be a little bit different. We do um, we do have a special guest with us, and uh, no, Caden, it's, it's not you. Um, we're very happy you're here, though. We're glad to have you, too. I understand. But uh, this week, we're, we're going to do what the, we hope is the first of many interviews. Today, we have a guy with us that is a, uh, this, this guy fronted a great great Memphis band this this band was called Roxy Blue and you know early 90s and I know David Caton all three of us man we love this band we, we've, we've talked about this band a lot over the years um, a lot the, on this the, podcast yeah you're right man and the, and the love of want some man it's 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 sincere I mean that is one of the I mean I mean that's one of the records I just love of my youth um, did then still do but this guy would go on to um, you know, become a founding member of Saliva, fronted many other bands that we plan to discuss. And, you know, so without carrying on too long, ladies and gentlemen, we have with us Mr. Todd Poole. Todd, What's how are up? you, buddy? Hey, I'm doing good, man. Doing real good. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming over. Uh, so, Todd, we kind of have a – every time we have somebody on here that's either a guest host or whatever, we have two questions we ask them at the beginning. Okay. What's your earliest memory of music, and what was the first band that, that hooked you into music for the rest of your life? <clears throat> that's an easy question for me. Um, I think I got into music probably uh, – I didn't know if I was I, – I don't, I don't remember when I – wasn't into music. I think my whole life I was beating on something or just, it just, it was in my blood, I guess. But um, I remember my parents took me to an Elvis concert uh, at the Mid-South Coliseum. And I think it was the last time Elvis played Memphis. And I actually have photos of that. Um, but still, I don't think at that point I really was totally like, I knew I wanted to play music. And then after my mother took me to Bobby Sherman and the Osmond Brothers, I still, that wasn't, it was just a, a, a glimpse for me. But when my father bought me, um, my father bought me, a, went to TGNY and bought me a Kiss Alive record, the first Kiss Alive record. And I remember sitting in my room very vividly, probably at the age of, 
you know, I'm going to guess 10, maybe 11. I don't know. I was sitting in there and I wouldn't come out of my room. I couldn't get my eyes off of this record. And, 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 you know, the album, you know, the albums, they opened up, you know, so I would, I would just look at this record for, for hours upon hours and listen to the record over and over and over. So that record influenced me big time. And, I, and at that point, I think this looked like a pretty cool thing to do. And then my, my, my best friend at the time, one of my best buddies, lived across the street, and his uncle played in a band called Target. And he said, you should check this album out. It's pretty cool. So I did, and I loved it, but the singer blew me away. I was like, wow, this guy can really sing. And, you know, little did I know at that age that that guy would end up becoming my father-in-law years later, Mr. Jimmy Jameson. Um, but so the first three records that I owned that were rock records that made me want to play music and was Target's first record, Kiss Alive, and Sweet, Desolation Boulevard. Um, I, those three records. And then I think I joined some album club, whatever they had back then, and I started getting all these albums. And, and then, then my life was actually taken over, I mean, by music. I mean, it was totally, um, I think at that point, I think I was hooked. So I don't know that, I, I, it, I didn't know that I was going to be a musician, but I knew that something changed about me, that it was like. It was in your DNA. Everything was about yeah. music, you know, and, and so my parents were like, cool, whatever. I mean, he's found something he loves, let him do it, you know, and uh, I used to do little concerts on this big toy box and my parents would have friends come over and I'd get up and, you know, play a record and just, you know, lip sync to it or whatever. So um, I'm glad we don't have any videos of that. <laughs> But I think at that point I was hooked, and I didn't really have a band. Me and some neighborhood guys get together. We didn't really know how to play or anything. I, I had a, a, I think I had a K guitar that looked like an SG, and I didn't know how to play it, you know. I mean, I think I learned Smoke on the Water. And, but when I got my drum set from my dad, bought this drum set for 50 bucks from this guy down the street that was going to throw it away, and that changed my whole life. At that point, I was like, dude. So I was a drummer. And everybody I started jamming with, they didn't have, couldn't find a singer. So I'm like, well, I wanted to be out front, but I love playing drums. So, I, I mean, I've ended up playing in bands, and that's what I did. I was the singer, and I was the drummer. Can you can you effectively do both at the same time? I mean, oh, if, yeah, if you had yeah. to... I still can do. I mean, that's just something... I didn't know that it was hard because that's just what I started doing. Right. I, mean, I never had to learn to do either. Yeah, they, I just learned both of them at the same time. That's just what I always did. I used to sit back in my room and play drums and sing the songs, you know. So, um, And I think a lot of it with me, so, I mean, I got into some cover bands and stuff, you know. I was always the young guy, and I, I got into some road bands and cover bands. And it's just... It just wasn't going, I mean, nobody was writing, you know, it was just like, I was just having fun and then something ticked when I was about, I don't know, I, well, I was 18 years old when I went in my first road band. 
I played with them for a year, and then I took three or four months off and had a room above a liquor store, and I just played drums, man. And I played to a click. I just played and tried to get better. And at night, and then I joined this band and went to Kentucky called TNA, and they were holding auditions, but and they had a gig that night, and I drove all the way there, and they're like, well, man, I think we kind of found our guy, but we'll give you a shot. So I think they were trying to throw me off. So they set me up in this, we had this big house in Bowling Green, Kentucky, in, in the woods, and it was just awesome. And they said, well, since you drove this way, we'll let you play. You know, they had a bass player named Mike that came from Cincinnati, and we said, well, we'll give these two guys a shot. And I think half the guys weren't even listening, they had people around. So they said, play hot for teacher knowing that probably I wasn't going to be able to get it, but I just happened to know it, like, <laughs> lick for lick. So I cut into it, and I got the gig immediately. But I couldn't go to their gig that night because I was too young. <laughs> so, but I played with them for a couple years, and then they fired me. And they fired me because I wanted to play original music. And at that point in time, we were going, you'd play a club for, like, four or five days and you'd play three or four sets at night and those guys were older than me and they were staying up all night and partying and sleeping till five get up go do it again and I kept saying man we should go down to the club and write songs and I think eventually I pushed them to the brink and they were like man this guy's bugging the crap out this kid's bugging us so they fired me and it devastated me man I mean it was fired I didn't get fired, I get fired. So I freaked out, man. And I went and I lived down in Midtown here in Memphis. And um, I went and stayed with my parents for a few days and I decided my mom was like, you know, you're depressed, man. Well, you know, go do something. Well, I'll just go down there and tan. I didn't know what to do. I was just didn't care. I was gonna lay somewhere. Walked into a tanning bed at a place. And I heard, I was waiting to tan and I heard the guitar playing. And I asked the lady at the counter, well, what is that? She goes, that's my son. He's in the back room in an empty room. If you want to go back there, you can. And I opened the door and Sid Fletcher was sitting in the corner playing oh, wow. guitar. And I said, hey, dude, sounds great, man. My name's Todd Poole. And he goes, yeah, I've heard of you. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I said, man, you want to start a band? And he's like, yeah, I got a bass player that went to GIT with me, Josh Wild. I said, well, I got a drummer. And we got together within the next week at the place I lived at above the studio, at Cotton Row Studios in Midtown. And we clicked. Dude, I mean, clicked. And I'm probably getting ahead of myself here or ahead of the thing, but I mean, it was instant. And that was how, that's how all that evolved into to getting to Roxy. I mean, it was like, and it was it was not forced. It wasn't forced. I mean, he was like instant. And it was such like uh, therapy for me because I was at an all-time low. And I went from an all-time low to, wow, man, I might have a chance to do something here. So there we go. So you needing a tan led to Roxy Blue <laughs> Being formed. Whether I needed one or not, me going to a tan, yeah, Sid and I acted as gay as it sounds, and uh, me and Sid actually met at his mother's tanning bed, and I guess the rest is history after that, you know? 
Well, how long from um, when you met Sid at the tanning salon to getting a deal with Geffen? That is, it's crazy. You know, it was a different time and era back then, man, you know, than it is now. Um, we probably jammed for about a year. And we, we, what happened is we started, we got everything. We actually had a keyboard player when we first started. And Sid and I were writing songs like all the time. I mean, we just lived for it, man. That's all we did, man. We jam, jam, jam. And so within a year, I mean, the band was practicing all the time and was clicked. It's like everybody was going for the same thing, you know, no hang ups. Everybody, we knew we were rehearsing, we were practicing every day. So within a year, I would say, we had fired our keyboard player and we kind of started finding our sound and ourselves. But the weird thing is, is that we were opening for these bands like Lord Tracy. We opened for Sweet F.A. We opened for Every Mother's Nightmare. We were opening for all these bands and all of a sudden we couldn't get a gig with anybody. And I, depressed, and I was like, I was asking my friends, nobody will let us play anymore. And they're like, dude, you are not an opening band anymore. Don't hold it against the bands, but, you know, would you let you open? I see, at that point, I'm like, I don't know, man. I mean, I'm just jamming. So we, we, our, I remember doing our first headlining gig, and I was terrified. I'm like, nobody's going to come. And Where was that, the first headlining gig? I do not know. Uh, was I, it here I, in I, Memphis? It was. I, I don't remember. I want to maybe stage stop, maybe. I'm not even sure. Um, but I do remember it being jammed packed and so at that point we started playing everywhere we would play night moves I and mean, be it would be jammed I mean when I say jammed I mean, it was a great time in Memphis when I say jam when our show was over there was still a line outside so I mean it was a great time for us um, and then that's when the label started coming around but we ended up getting a lawyer named Jim Zumwalt that actually believed in us and he's in Nashville and he's he's worked with a lot of people and he believed in us and he would shop the band he was shopping us and we made demos at Cotton Row and our demos acted actually turned out really good man so we were shopping and back then everybody wanted to come if there was a buzz they wanted to come see the band what's the buzz about well every one of our shows were packed so I mean we had that going and I don't think we really knew what was going on at the time. And we knew we wanted a deal and we were going for it, but everything was going so fast, man. So within the year, I remember the night we got signed. And I'm going to be honest with you, we got signed crazy enough within a, from the time we got together within a two year period. I mean, Without a doubt, maybe even sooner than that. But I remember when we got signed, Scotty T was in a band that opened that night. And your drummer. Yeah. And so he not, wasn't the original drummer. He was not. My okay. cousin Ronnie Obviously. Knight was. Okay. And Tom, we had two labels there. The place was jammed packed. I mean, fire marshal jam packed. It stayed stop. That's where we decided to do it. That's where we got started. And Zutat, Tom Zutat walked in from Geffen, and we didn't know he came, you know. And he sat down with our lawyer and actually signed us on a piece of paper. All right, for the people out there that don't know how big of a deal he was, 
He signed, uh, he was the guy behind Guns N' Roses. Right. Tesla, he actually signed Motley Crue to Electra, too. So he was a big deal. So at the time, you couldn't be dealing with anybody hotter at the time. But he had the mind. Put it this way, when he, walked in the other, when he walked in the building, I heard that the other labels basically said, it's over. So I was it them. a showcase type show? Meaning, like, we did were, you we know were actually, that multiple reps were we there? We knew that labels? two labels were there, and I'm not going to... Major labels, though? Major labels. And we, we knew that they were there, so we were there to kick their ass. Tom <laughs> had actually seen us before, and he kind of put us on like a... You know, we'll, I'll give you six months, you know, I really like the band and see how y'all grow and and all that. But he wasn't there when we started. So we saw the other two labels and we were like, this is cool, let's go kick some butt. Um, and then Tom just slipped in right before we went on. I, you you I, didn't I, know he was showing still up Still didn't night. know. I mean, it's packed, we had a good show. We get off the stage, we go to the back in the back and the crowd's yelling for us to come back. And all of a sudden, through the door comes our lawyer and Tom Zutai. And Tom comes back there and says, hey, man, how's it going, guys? And we're like, Tom, how's it going, dude? Glad you could make it. And he's like, dude, I got here just before you started. And uh, so why don't you guys go back out there? How would you guys like to be on Geffen? And we were like in awe. He's like, go back out there and tell everybody you're Geffen recording artists because you guys are with Geffen. And it was a surreal moment, man. My parents were crying. I mean, the whole crew, people in the crowd crying because we had worked so hard. And your life changed like that. It, it changed. Wow. And then we were flying in. We were looking for management. And I remember Janie Lane is actually the guy, my buddy, rest, rest in peace. I, I love that guy. He, he actually is the guy who kick-started everything for Roxy Blue. He came and saw us at a little bar called Rascals. In Midtown Square. That was over by a local. You see many Sam's across yeah, above exactly. that. Yeah, second floor. They were in town to play the next night. And he came up, and I remember the manager of the club said, Hey, Jamie Lane from Warren's over there, and he wants to talk to you. We have just played. And I was like, Yeah, whatever. He's like, No, he is. And I went over and talked to him. He's like, Man, I really love the band. I'd like to help you. So let me, why don't you come to my show tomorrow night? So we all went to the show. And then their management started coming in town, and we were taking them to strip bars, and I mean, just treating them like when we were anything we did in town. I mean, people like it was like I hate to, for lack of better terms, but in the rock scene, we were you know when we went, it was people there. Yeah, you know, it was cool. So we got to be really good friends with Warrant, and we we went out to L.A. with them and hung out, and and then. Geffen decided that Tom was like, man, I think you guys ought to check out Doug Thaler of Motley Cruise Management. I got a good, uh, you know, good rapport with him, and he's a good guy. And he broke away from um, uh, what was the other manager that managed uh, Bon Jovi? Doc McGee. Doc McGee. They were together, and then after the Russian show, Russia show, he went with Molly only. So we said, okay, well, cool. I talked to Janie about it, and uh, we ended up going with Doug, and uh, we liked Doug, and I mean, I liked uh, Eddie Weinrich from uh, the guy that was with the Warrants guys, but I mean, I liked them, and they and they showed a lot of interest because they kept coming in town, and I mean, we were doing great things with Warren. I mean, they played at the Coliseum, and I remember getting up there and Janie getting me up on and saying, "Well, Todd says that 
this is Todd from Roxy Blue, and he says the party's at the stage stop. <laughs> we went to the stage stop, when we pulled up, there were cops everywhere. It was so half the Coliseum was at, in the, I mean, all over. Did Janie go to the stage stop? Oh, yeah, we played live. <laughs> Guys in one and Roxy Blue, we all were playing together. It was an insane. Wow. I mean, insane. I made that up. All right. Uh, but the whole deal was, is once we went with Doug Baylor, I felt weird. So I went to Janie and said, man, they want us to go with Motley Cruz management. And Janie, man, was like, dude, I'd do it. I mean, I'd like you to go with us, but I mean, you know, Motley Crue, come on, man. We're opening for Motley Crue right now on tour, (laughs) and they're going to manage you? Right. So, and that opened up a whole new door for us just for the simple fact that, that, uh, that Motley, you know, we we got to know the guys pretty good, especially Tommy and Nikki, and they used to hang out with us a lot. But, you know, that was a big thing for us. And... I, I think we'd made the right decision, but we probably would have been able to not have to, because they were going through a lot with Vince, I think we probably, if we would have gone with the Warren thing, we probably would have been able to go on tour. We were a live band. We wanted to play. Mm-hmm. But Doug was good to us, man. And, you know, when you have Doug Thaler from Motley Crue at Top Rock Management, and you've got Mike Klink, who just finished, who does all the Guns N' Roses stuff, producing your record and then which we I love Mike and then you've got Tom Zutat from Geffen who you have the all star team all our deals were huge (laughs) I mean we struck a humongous publishing deal Um, so it was a no brainer I mean it's just the timing with Seattle coming out and get you know DGC just signed Nirvana who knew that that was going to basically be like a tsunami coming in and just wiping that whole thing out. So we just missed the boat. Yeah. I mean, we really did. I mean, Kalogner had a meeting with uh, Zutat. I'll never forget it. Geffen saying, "Man, you gotta, you gotta." He he had just got Jackal. And what he did was Jackal. He put Jackal out with his other band, Aerosmith, and got him out there quick, right? So they could get out there. He knew what was getting ready to happen. He told Zootype, man, you got to release their, their demo of Times Are Changing right now while you're making the record. They'll be halfway gold. And it just didn't happen. Tom had his own plans, and I do respect him for that. It just wasn't in the cards, man, you know? All right, I have a quick question because the record, the music industry fascinates me. And I don't want you to give me numbers or anything. When, when you sign, like, with Geffen, is there... So to speak, like an initial signing bonus, but then does the does the record company have to recoup that from your cut of? The oh album? yeah, it's real simple. I mean, and I would tell any, it's all different these days than it used to be, because there's a lot of internet stuff now. But back in the day, um, and, and I was fortunate enough to be able to go to Sound City and go to things like go to places like that where it, all the real music was happening, right. where people actually played their instruments, you know. Right. Um, but it's real simple. Um, we got a great deal. We really did. Geffen, I mean, probably regrets giving us the money we got because they probably didn't get their money. But here's the deal. So if a band were to walk up to me today and tell me we got a million-dollar deal, I would go, wow, dude, I guess congratulations because they don't understand. It's a bank loan. That's all it is. They're not, you're, everything that the company spends on you, you got to pay back. Right. 
So there's they split it up. You got a mechanical royalty and a performance royalty. Your mechanical royalty is going to be your album sales, stuff like that. Your performance royalties are going to be when they play you on the radio and you get your royalty from the BMI, ASCAP, whoever you're with. So the record company has to recoup the money they put into you before you start making 100% of your profit. That's why a lot of these bands in the, you know, like Pearl Jam did it, you know, I mean, Ari, I mean, Metallica was doing it, you know, they're wanting to go, you know, a lot of bands you start seeing start starting their own corporation, starting to do that because they're like, man, you know, they, they, they realize no matter how much money they made, you know, you appreciate the record company because they're behind you and they're doing all the stuff that you don't have to do and they're working hard for you and Gavin did a great job for us and I'll never, I'll never, you know, deny that. I mean, I'm, I was blessed to be on that label. They were good to us, but the deal is, is that you owe that money back. It's not that you're not making money, but they're getting they cut get a, first. Well, of course they are because they spent all this money on you. So right. big, and back then, you know, a four or five hundred thousand dollar deal for a record deal was pretty damn good for an unheard of band. Right. And then you're and then striking a publishing deal that we struck one of the biggest publishing deals for any band that was virtually absolutely unknown because of the people that were behind us. So with y'all having the management team that you did and the record label that you did, did you ever consider taking the band and moving them to LA? Man, we basically lived there. I mean, we didn't, at that point in our lives, we didn't have a, I mean, we could call Memphis our home, but I mean, I lived in LA most of the time. I mean, and they, and we spent so much time on the road and, and we'd travel back and forth to, to New York. And I mean, we played on We played live on MTV twice. So, right. I mean, it was, we were always on the go. So I never really looked at having a home. I mean, I, we came home to Memphis. I would go, God, man, it was cool to have a break. And two days into the break, I was like, good, I'm ready to go. Ready to go. You know, so we didn't really have a stable place. So in our I say short period that we had, you know, the two or years, three years or whatever doing that, I never had time to think about if I was stable because I was always moving, you know. I mean, even on the second record that we we were getting into, um, we knew that it was going to be a, I mean, they basically came to us and said, look, dude, they're not going to push the record. It's a write-off. But our lawyer was smart and said, he put a clause in there and said that if I were to quit the band, that the band owed no money. Well, I went out to sing for, Janie called me and said, dude, man, I'm gonna go solo. The guys need a singer. And they didn't wanna call you because they didn't wanna break Roxy Blue up. I'm like, dude, he goes, I'll fly you out here. So I went and sang for Warrant for a while. We're gonna and, get to that because we have Yeah, some that was fun, you know, it was fun. But yeah, so, so to answer your question, back in the day, to me, it was kind of cool. They came and saw you, they liked you, they flew you out to the companies, they signed a deal with you, and and you you had to have a good lawyer, period. That's it, <laughs> because you were too dumb. Nobody's, you can't read a contract right. this thing. So yeah, you have to, it is a bank loan. Okay. Is, so. Well, see, we were always under the assumption, of course, that any band that had, that were the, if they were gonna make it in that, in that time of music, they had to go to LA. And I know Boys that's what David was asking you that Pittsburgh, question. You know. 
Yeah, I mean, there were a few bands that broke outside. You know, you mean you got White Line out of New York. I think, you got, I think you're right, though. I think no matter where the band's from, because they were coming out. If you had a buzz, they were coming to see you. But you were going to come to their... You had to come to their neck of the woods, for the most part, to be in the scene. You had to. I mean, you just had to. You couldn't... You're not gonna, they're not going to work you from Wyoming, you know. They're going to bring you from Wyoming. They're going to take you out here, and they're going to put you in a, in a wolf den, and they're going to try to make you do what you got to so do. So you you were from where you were from, but you became an L.A. band, basically. I guess we did, man. You know, I'll be honest with you. We, we became, we were for the bands that we listened to. You know, I changed from that, but I mean, in that point, I knew what I knew, and I was into... Van Halen, that's what Tom saw us at, a new Van Halen type thing. And I was kind of, I loved Van Halen, but we really didn't try to be like Van Halen. And I know that sounds stupid because I did the splits and Sid wore the overalls, but we really didn't try to be, I mean, Sid's influences and his favorite guitar players were Steve Morris of the Dixie Dregs and Roy freaking Clark from Hee Haw. <laughs> so... Not quite Eddie Van Halen. No, but I mean, he liked Eddie Van Halen because he broke his wrist one time and he had to just practice with one hand. So, but we never tried to be that. It's just what we kind of naturally became. And a lot of people did peg us as the band that was kind of being like, band. but I think all bands at some point, no matter who they are, are going to remind you of somebody else that, that influenced them. And that's just the way it is. You just got to find your own niche to it. But we were a serious band. We were not a flower, makeup, you know, you know, fake band. Right. Our boys could play. That's one thing about Roxy Blue. When we went out, I'll never forget sitting in Jerry Dixon from Warren's apartment. And I'm looking over there and, and Eric and Jerry are very great friends of mine. And so is Joey. They all are. And I remember... Sid and Josh sitting there showing them stuff. I mean, our guys could play. I mean, Josh and Sid and Scotty were great players and still are. So y'all y'all signed with Geffen, and they're gonna y'all recorded that in L.A. Right? Mm -hmm. All right. Does Mike Clink come to y'all? Does the record company send y'all to Clink, or do y'all say we want to work with Mike Clink? And for those people that didn't catch it, Mike Clink did Appetite for Destruction. Um, yeah, and he was it, working. He was finishing up "Use Your Illusion" yeah. at the time, and he's done a lot of people. But I, what happened is, is it's weird because um, because we're connected with all these people, producers started kind of coming and hearing the buzz. So um, we had a couple producers that came out and saw us live, and they passed on us. And they were pretty big producers. They just that wasn't their cup of tea, and that's fine. I mean. Um, Max Norman was the guy that wanted to do our record, and I hung out with Max for a while, and I really liked Max the way he, I mean, I loved what he did with Lynch Mob, and I loved what he did with uh, the, the Aussie stuff. I mean, he was just, so we almost went with him, and I'll never forget when they said, Mike Klink, what do y'all think about, I mean, at this point, you know, you kind of just kind of go, at, the, it, it, at that age and everything, and Tom Zutok comes to us and Doug there, like, look, man, we've been talking to Mike Klink. We think we, Mike Klink wants to do the record. We think he should do it. And we were like, okay, fine. 
we didn't even, at that point, I didn't even care who he did. They said, Mike Clink. I'm like, okay, well, let's get this guy Mike to do it. <laughs> and I became, Mike was absolutely incredible to work with. And he was a real guy. And he married a girl from Memphis, which was really weird, man. But Mike was that guy that was like, hey, dude, when Appetite, came, when we did Appetite for Destruction, me and McKayser Ryan, we did that. We literally thought it might sell 100,000 copies. That's how weird it is. But Mike was great to work with. So with the, answering your question, I, I, you know, we just went with who they said. And, uh, and why and it, would you argue with them at that point? I mean, Yeah, I mean, you know, and at that point, we were ready to make a record. You know, and if you guys, and then when we found out what Mike, Mike's finishing up the Use Your Illusion, he did Appetite for Destruction, we're like, okay, cool. Just add another check mark to this A triple A list we got, so we're good. Right. When do we start the record? You know, so hey, we were Todd, treated like kings. So so. You you mentioned ten minutes ago maybe when you were talking about management and different plans and Tom had a plan, etc. I, I I'm curious because if you think about the timing of when Want Some came out, ninety two. Right. If you think about the timing of a debut album for a band. You know, the it, it, it was it was on the later end of the spectrum. It was. And, 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 and you mentioned earlier, you know, someone, I can't remember who you said, you know, saying, hey, we need to get, you know, we need to get times are changing out there right now. That was John Kalogner from Geffen. Legend. How, legend. I, I, yeah, he's too. a legend. I, I'm just curious how conscious you guys were of the criticality of the timing as far as you know, because there was somewhat of a break point there between, you know, genres of music and Nirvana coming on the scene. I Man, mean, that is How conscious absolutely. were you uh, as far as, you know, could this thing come out six months earlier and, you know, versus... That's a great question. Probably one I haven't been asked in that, in that format, but I'm, it's, it's weird because nobody knew how fast the Seattle scene was going to hit. And I mean nobody. And one thing I did learn about the record company is record companies and all the regional reps and everything is if when you were hot, man, dude, you couldn't do no wrong. They, they were all up your butt and they loved you. And with a flick of the switch, they didn't know who you were and didn't care. So to, was I conscious of what's going on? I don't know that anybody was, because I don't think anybody saw it coming. I was fortunate enough to be in, on the label that Gary Gertz signed Nirvana. I was in that label. I'll never forget riding in the car with Todd Sullivan from Geff and him going, hey dude, there's a new band coming out called Nirvana that we just signed to Geff and check it out. And he played the basically kind of the demos to Smells Like Teen Spirit. Wow. And I'm sitting there listening to it, and I loved it. And I was hooked. And it, the, and it and it's weird. It changed my perspective. All of a sudden, I almost didn't want to... I wanted to make another record. Because we did get a little bit frustrated. Because especially after the meeting with Kalogner, I just happened to be there when that meeting was happening. So I was like... And Jimmy Davis... Uh, Jimmy Jameson sang on the record my father-in-law, which wasn't at the time, but he sang on the record of Times Are Changing. Jimmy Davis from Memphis sang on the demo, the background. And I was going, God, when we, I remember, I think we did talk a little bit about it going, man, 
we got to get this thing out. But we didn't do it because we thought that Seattle was getting ready to take over. And I think Janie Lane said it best. He said, dude, I'll never forget being in his house. And he said, I walked into Geffen yesterday and above the reception desk was a big billboard deal of cherry pie. And I walked in there this morning and Allison James. I've, heard, I've read that. Yeah, before. he's, he's talked about it. I'm gonna tell you that. something, yeah. but I mean that's true. I mean I'm not making that up. I mean I did writing I, I on know the wall, it's literally. I guess it, he know. told me that, mm-hmm. and I mean, I mean, not to get off the beaten subject, but real quick, I'll tell you, I was there. I'm was there the night for the reason of the big teeth in the video of Cherry Pie. I was there. When I was sitting there right next to Janie at the bar, right after I got through recutting times or changing vocals, I met the guys at a bar, and we're all sitting at the bar, and all of a sudden, this dude comes up and <laughs> hits Janie, knocks him over the bar, knocks his teeth out, hits Jerry Dixon, blood vessels busting his face, turns around, swings at me, I duck, he hit uh, Eric. It was a fiasco. And so Janie had to get all new teeth. So they made a mockery of it. Anybody know this I story? Never, no, never I didn't know this story. I swear to, yeah. God, I swear to no. God. That's I had no clue, because I know exactly what you're talking about, the big teeth. But I did not know this that story. Was, that was the whole... So no close-ups on Janie during that video, except for that. <laughs> that was the whole deal, man. I mean, and, and, and that was a trying time for them, and they pulled through with flying colors. But, I mean, look, I ain't lying to you. I was there the night. The guys were so stoked. Uncle Tom's Cabin was supposed to be the first single, and they loved it. And I thought it was great. It was heavy. It was cool. And Janie came up to me one night. We were drinking uh, 1,800 tequila. Sitting at his house, and we'd been out. And he said, hey, Todd, they want me to write another single. They wanted me to write a first single. And he goes, you know what? I'll be honest with you. He goes, I did. And he goes, I'm just scared that this one's going to haunt me forever. And he sat and played me cherry freaking pie on a, on a, on his acoustic like a bird. I couldn't even hardly see straight. And he's singing his ass off. And the guys could drink. I ain't lying. They taught me how to drink. And I'm, I say that with, with pride because... But, you were um, a novice before. You know? I hung out with them a lot. And I'm going to tell you right now, it, that... I mean, they were really, they are true good. They're great artists. And Janie was probably one of the best songwriters I've ever. Of any genre. We've said that before on this. Absolutely. An extremely, extremely underrated. And then I called him one day and said, hey, man, is there any way you could come down and sing on the record? I mean, I didn't have to ask him twice. He's like, yeah, man. He came down and he sang. He's the guy who sang background on uh, um, Too Hot to Handle. And he sang background on um, Rob the Cradle. That's Janie. Nice. Never knew that. So you've mentioned um, times. Did I answer your question? No, I'm you sorry. did. You yeah. had, you absolutely sorry, did. You, you've mentioned times are changing several times. Was that thought to be the song that was you know because back then you would release a rock song, get the guys sucked in, and then you would release a ballad. Was times are changing? Was that supposed to be the one that, that the record company was really going to be, you know, be behind? Well, we came out with Rob the Cradle, and Rob the Cradle, I didn't write any. I mean, they the guys actually wrote all the music of that song. I just came up with the lyrics, and, and I always told them, man, it sounds like Man Island, man. But people liked it, so we did that. So times are changing, obviously, was going to be the home run hitter. I think the way it was going to go, they were going to re- release Love on Me to kind of rock radio, to kind of in-between. 
we were actually having a meeting about the video for Times Are Changing. It was going to be the big deal. Um, and it was in the works. We thought, dude, this is it. And we, were, I think they were going to follow up with Nobody Knows. And we were like, you know, it's, this is great. This is going to happen. Right. And... There was a big deal. Did you notice that they changed our album cover? Yeah, there was two. Okay, yeah. the back they, became the front because <laughs> we we had a much music in is called is MTV in right, Canada. Canada, and we were on the road and we had an interview with this lady and me and Scotty T walked in and she was so kind and sweet and, and then she attacked us when we went live and she because there was a big sex sexist thing going on back then sex you know sexual harassment all that stuff and. What is this album cover about? There's a they, there, your album cover's been banned in Canada, and and I was thinking, damn, I wish we would have got a fair warning on this one. <laughs> but she ended up being cool because I told her we and Scotty were like, look, I think we're not caught up in that. All we do is play music. I mean, you know, it's like if you want to talk about Van Halen, we'll talk about Van Halen. We got an angel with lucky strikes. I mean, isn't it all supposed to be fun? I mean, why, when did music become? It's too much of a statement. Sure. I mean, it's supposed to be fun, you know? I mean, so with that being said, we we got hit with, I mean, so we, we ended up, they changed the cover to 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 that. Um, so, um, so did the cover become the one with you doing the split? Yeah, I mean, the yeah, we, the they had to do that. So um, did I get off the question? No, it's about times are changing because. Oh, so times are changing. What happened with? I'm sorry. The time, the thing with times are changing is because of that, and because of the way things were going. There was a guy, Geffen. I don't want to mention any names. That got. That was kind of involved with some of that that was going on for that song. Mm-hmm. He got let go because of sexual harassment, from what I heard. So that kind of got pushed back. And as things get pushed back and the Seattle thing's coming forward, and that was our home run hitter. And they, you know, we, it was a number one single in Seattle. I mean, it, we, they tested Times Are Changing in four of the top markets, and it tested number one. So we knew that it was a good thing. The problem is it was a day late dollar short so it never got the push it never it never officially came out as a single can you believe that when that was the song that was they were banking on when they signed us that, that album came out when I was a sophomore in high school and Damn. that was the that, oh, that was that was the song you wanted playing when you're riding when you when you were riding around you had you had a lady in the car we you know but, yeah yeah I like I like I like the way that sounds <laughs> I do have Two kind of crazy questions about okay. that song. I know on the stripped album and on Want Some More, y'all playfully say times are changing versus like eight twenty nine or something. You know, something. Did y'all was that? Did y'all toy with it a lot? Man, we just I changed some lyrics um, from the first time I wrote the song. The song was a fast song when we first wrote it. Believe it or not, and Sid and I one day you used to start with. Key, uh, keyboards mm-hmm. and sitting out of sight and one day hey man so man we should slow that song down so Sid started playing slower and I sang it and then it was just a magic but the reason there's so many versions is that we did some lyric changing and then if you'll notice on it, it, it's stripped they the acoustic version mm-hmm. to start with mm-hmm. 
So we went in. They, they said, you know, go make some. They paid us to go back into Nico's studio. We met our hometown. We went in there and kind of an homage to him for starting this up with us. And, and we did a few songs in the studio with him, kind of like a different twist. And if you'll notice, like, the, nobody knows, man. It's basically keys, and it's like a whole different deal, you know. So we actually cut those after we made the record. So we were doing them for, like, different versions, and I think we had some acoustic versions. And I mean, I, this what, probably something one, that one I've last, never heard. One last question about the song. This, this may be stupid, but I've always wondered. In the video for like it's called the Memphis version that y'all walking up in right. the district. It's a great What's with video. the eye patch? Okay. <laughs> I get well, it. You might not have been asked that one before. That's I actually get asked that a lot. What happened is is um, we uh, this was actually cool, but not cool. Um, Japan, we were we were selling tons of records in Japan, so they sent a crew to Memphis. It had mobile trucks and everything. They had set up where they were doing, they had doc, they had people set up at the Peabody for the next day. It was like gonna be a big deal, interviews, and it, it was. But that morning I was, I woke up, sitting there on the couch, and I remember I looked over and my, my Rottweiler was looking at me and he wanted me to, wanted me to pet him and he just, without thinking he just put his paw up for me to pet him and it just happened to scratch the corner of my oh. I called my dad and said dad I can't see man my eyes messed up so he took me to the doctor and I, they said I almost lost my eye but they patched me up I missed wow. sound check for this area but they built me they built me this thing so I couldn't move so every time I tried to look it was like somebody slicing my eye mm -hmm. but if you saw video you see that it was crowded as right. crap we pulled through it, but the next day, we're out there, and I got the thing patch on my eye walking around, man, and it, it was a weird time, but, I mean, I got the magazine that came out in Japan, too. Man, you know, everything's backwards right. when you do a <laughs> Japan magazine. But, yeah, that was a weird time, but, I mean, the show must go on. I mean, we couldn't cancel. So was that video, because I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about, the times are changing, the Memphis version. I watched it today actually I had no idea who made well, that video well, so that 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 was not actually aired that wasn't an MTV event. that no, was man it ended up getting on YouTube type. because no there was never an official video somebody made it and as stupid as it sounds I'm not really sure who made the dang thing but they did a really good job they did do a good job that's funny you I mean it kind of captured the essence of the band at the time and yeah it's really cool and they had to have access to all that footage. That's funny. You don't know who did it because there's clearly yeah, I, some In my house somewhere, I found, I've got all of the video, the, the interviews from, they had a, they, they rented a big ballroom at the Peabody and they had to sit on the stage and had all the Japanese people ask questions and had interpreters <laughs> ask, you know, ask us. It was kind of weird, but it was kind of cool. I felt really important at that time. I really did. I was like... Wow, man. But Japan, and we were scheduled to go over there and play, and it just never happened. No, you never played over there? No, and it was a, it was just a weird time right then because, you know, Geffen wasn't wanting to sink any more money because times were changing, wasn't going to make it out. And, you know, everybody was focusing on, you know, Seattle. And I don't blame them for the simple fact that 
man, fuck, man, the money. I mean, there was a lot of money to be made. I mean, you didn't have to be a good band. If you told them you were from Seattle, they were going to sign you. Well, you see, know? I think that's the same thing as what came before. You know, I don't think you necessarily had to be a good band in 1988 to get signed. You know, you had to have a certain look. You had to have the long hair. I think hair. you're true. I think you, that's so true. I mean, it was, it was a matter of, yeah, we've talked about this so much. Pretty boy rock. David and I, we've talked about it so much. It was, you know, it, people want to blame it on grunge killed it. I don't think grunge killed it. I think it was... Somebody, it was they it, needed a change. It was the labels. It was MTV. And it was the same thing over and over. It got so saturated. And he had all these That's, bands... I don't think it was play. the labels, though. I think it was I think it was the people. It's always the people. And I think every once in a while, you could wear something out so much that something different that's real. I mean, people always tell me, man, Seattle, Seattle, the haters are like, man, Seattle was so negative and all that. But it, it was what it was. Those guys were not trying to be that. They just came out. That's and what it, they did. I think people needed a change, and it just struck a chord with I people. Agree. It struck a chord with me, and I was playing the other stuff. But I think, but the thing is, is that you're right about '88 and all that, and that's not to say that you had a handful of bands that were like I was not a fan of Warrants, dude. I became a fan of Warrants when I found me and Janie became friends, and I found out how good he was. I thought that the Cherry Pie record was a freaking awesome record. wasn't a big fan of the first record, but. We were, I wasn't really a fan of that whole scene, man. I really, I mean, I liked Bon Jovi on the, on the Jersey record and all that, but I wasn't, personally, I was not a big fan and we might've looked like we were, but I was not a fan of Poison and all the glam rock. I mean, I, I mean, I respect them for doing what they're doing, but I was not a fan. I was a fan of 70s rock. I was a fan of Van Halen and Led Zeppelin and all that stuff. But we played the game, man. You know, we so... I think what's interesting... But, but, but I'm sorry, but the I want to answer you. No, I don't want to cut no, you no, off. I just want to say that there's so many bands, though, that but we're like sister bands to the, the ones like... Like, this band's not really that great, but they got the look and everything. So people bought into it. So it, and, and I don't want to like slam any bands right. here, but 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 there are certain bands that I don't think they could play that much, and I think they had a look, and they they fit that same profile, and I think it killed it. Bands like Roxy Blue could actually play; they were a little bit different. I think bands like you know we we were talking earlier off before we got on here, we were off the air, we were talking about the Scream or John Crawley, right? The Scream. Um, Bang, Bang Tango. Tango. I mean, bands like that. <laughs> bands that could, good, good play right there, man. But Bang Tango. Bands like that that could actually play, they're offering something a little bit different. And I think that's what you guys are doing. But I, I think it's unfortunate that as grunge came in, and I'm like you, man. I, I loved a lot of that stuff. I still love a lot of that. I think it's unfortunate that, that there wasn't room for both. That's what's unfortunate. The guys that could really play, it's like... You know why there wasn't room for both? Is because they were... And, and the, I, will, I will say this, because I want to backtrack a little bit. I will sure, say this. You said labels. Here's the deal. It's, it, I call it the Mascherona syndrome. You shove something down somebody's throat long enough that they are programmed to like it, whether they liked it in the beginning or not. Okay, so that's Nick, life. Sorry, Nickelback. People. There is not <laughs> room for 
There's not room for both because they were so different on the spectrum, you know? And then the people that still, and I'm glad that this kind of music's kind of making a comeback, but there wasn't really room because you felt like, well, people, there was so much pressure. Well, man, I, I really like this music, but it ain't cool to like this music anymore. Well, who said that? I mean, who actually, is that, is, that in, is that a constitutional right? You cannot like this kind of music. But I watched bands that were playing arenas that were friends of mine that were doing good to pack a place like the Daisy. And it wasn't because people still loved them and they still wanted to go, but they were kind of programmed to like something else. And Couldn't in agree a way, more. if you'll notice, the bands that I started playing like saliva and we were just totally different you know i mean i just I, I, you know i mean i i tried not to be connected to what i was doing because i tried to be doing something different because right. i changed yeah i did i changed you know i mean and i grew up but i still am grateful for the time i had and i wished we would have had more time i've always so, thought i've always thought point, that certain bands roxy blue absolutely being one of them you, well, thank you, you for saying several. Bang Tango would be another They're one to me. Doratora was one of the greatest bands. Bands that absolutely could play. You know, Zach Myers just said that's his favorite band of the 80s. He said Doratora is his favorite man, band. Great friends of mine. Great band, man. Great bands band. that were uber talented. I, I've, I've often thought that you, you guys were almost... I mean, I think the analogy is true. You guys were almost guilty by association. Oh, yeah. Well, With some of the bands, like you said, you don't want to name names because, hell, half of them, you know, I have their albums and I enjoy them even if they weren't great players. Well, what you're but there saying, were some of the firehouses, know? the whoever, the tricksters. That I, had I felt that like you guys one, were almost guilty by association. That went out. And, I mean, me and Perry were still friends, but look, let me tell you something. I'll give you an analogy right now that'll sum up everything you said. When we did the MTV Headbangers Ball, Love It or Shove It, remember that? Yeah, of course I do. We got shoved by one point. But the beauty of it is MTV was so in, they got more hits. They called Doug Favor at Top Rock and said, look, we just had to let you know. And I got the news from Doug. He said, dude, don't you dare, don't you dare feel bad about that. Because they got more calls than they've ever had on the show ever and the only reason you lost by one point was the big thing that people said that y'all were it was too much like Van Halen and dude if I was an outsider looking in I would have gone I'm this video makes me have fun it's got everything all the cliche things you need right it was rock and roll but the splits the overalls everything it was but that's what Tom Zutat was trying to go hey Van Halen legendary band all these other bands are kind of like doing the same thing that Poison's doing and all yeah, that but here's a band that's doing what which means all those bands are basically doing what Hanover Rocks did and, or New York Dolls and all that the glam rock just set that down anywhere it's okay <laughs> but, but then here you got a band that's doing the Van Halen thing what's wrong with that right. I mean really what is wrong with that is anybody going, hey, dude, uh, that band's being, I mean, Jenny Lane, you know how many haters were on Warrant? But, man, if you went, did you ever see Warrant live? I've, I saw them, 
I mean, back in the heyday with Janie. I, not, no, not in the heyday. Let me tell you something. If you saw, and I went to a bunch of their shows when they were on tour with Motley. If you saw Janie Lane and that band live in a big arena put on a show, let me tell you something, brother. You were captivated because Janie Lane was a freaking master. He was a ringmaster. I mean, he was it. And he cared about his fans and he cared. And he made you have a good time. So what's wrong with that? And I think people, I don't know if it was the time of Aaron, what was going on, but, you know, it's like Chris, it's like, like the whole thing, man, with the made to like something or whatever. People at a point in time to me, felt like they were guilty for having a good time. Right. I mean, really. And it's weird because one thing I loved about that era is that it was, like you were, in that era, man, people were having fun at shows and then all of a sudden that kind of stopped and it became angry. Well, it's like we talked about on a previous episode, and I've, I've said this several times, I came into grunge kicking and screaming, but my whole thing was, why aren't these guys so sad? You know, let's... <laughs> Let's talk about this thing about you know women and, and having a good time you know and these guys are just such a such a buzzkill. You know why don't you? Because all the bands that were in our era, it was sunshine and baby, but <laughs> and they, they, were up there they, they the lived rain. in a freaking rainy, gloomy. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean See, not, LA. Look, not I mean, taking up for them, but if you really give them, I mean, look. Kurt Cobain, I mean, they did. I think Kurt really did write about his life. I think he had a rough life. I think there's a lot of glam rock guys, for lack of better words, that probably lived a life like that too. But I'm not going to take away from those guys who 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 sounded the, the Seattle guys. Man, they're, they're great writers. I mean, they were they really spoke, and it, it was meant to be. It was meant to be the the Pearl Jams. The sound, I mean, Soundgarden guys can really play. Man. Well, they're these heavy cats, too, man. Yeah, and these cats could really play, man. You know. So, but I will say this: I hate to see when somebody says, "Oh, you know, man, dude, you know, he never wanted to be a rock star." Well, guess what, dude? Bullshit. That's what you, you know signed why? up for. Because when you strap a guitar on, everybody that plays music that's trying to go for it. If you don't want to be a rock star, then say no to the record deal. Exactly. Okay? Because the bottom line is, everybody wants to make it. Now, what happens is, is you get caught up in it, and things happen fast, and you might not realize you're going to be that big so quick. You know, like, I got a small taste of it, but guys like the big boys, they got, you know, imagine being a nobody to somebody that can't even go to the grocery store. Right. You know, his only release is to, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know what that's like. I'm just saying that Kurt Cobain said it himself. I always wanted to be a rock star. So, but people have, the, but he was a voice of a generation. And that only happens, I think that generation switches every once in a while. And I think that, that they needed that. He spoke, he didn't really, if, I don't think he was negative at all. I think his music, if you if you took his lyrics away, his music was actually kind of happy. It was kind of pop in a way, if you think about it. He's a huge Dan Beatles fan. Dan, 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 Dan. Oh, yeah. How, how poppy is the Beatles? And that was way, one of his biggest influences. By the way, man, there's a lot of Beatles songs that would make you want to freaking cut your throat. No doubt. Okay, so no you doubt. get it? No doubt. And I mean, he yes. Well, and I think, I think lyric, I mean, as far as 
when it comes to like somebody like Kurt Cobain, it was it was the life too, like you said, that you live. I mean, you talk about Seattle. I mean, it was these guys. Unfortunately, it was the drugs. It was the suicide. Yeah, it was man. gloomy. I, mean, I think it, it was, was the drugs. I think it was the drugs live. before. People knew about these bands. I just think if that was the life. I think if it was just, you know, they always said it rained all the time. They didn't have anything to do. So and two, music is so cyclical. Cyclical is is uh, you know you talk even country. Like I'm a big Hank Williams the third fan. Hank three. I'm a huge fan of his. And he said before, it's like yeah, the music we hear today, it's shit, but it's gonna come back. It's going to eventually come back. It's man, cyclical. it is, man. It's, gonna, it's cyclical. And I believe that's the same thing with rock, man. I believe it's going to come back. I mean, we're, ha- we're in a down... I can keep going. You know, the, you know the phase of music that just went... It's kind of kind of going away now that it really... I, I hate it, man. I, I, hate, I hate to even say I hate any kind of music, but... Man. That pop folk crap that came out about a year or so ago, and it's just drilled your... Like, I mean, I'm just like, oh my God, man, you know, this is why I went away for this guy, man. So anyway, um, great point though, man. Great, great point. I, I have, so speaking of Kurt Cobain, very quick question. You know, we, no, you know, no, you guys, no, no. we, you know, we're probably going to have to do a part two to this. We, we, we we're going to have to. I mean, you uh, know, Nirvana, we could talk uh, for like four hours. Was Nirvana was on Geffen? D- yeah, well, DGC, yeah, which was okay. David Geffen, Geffen company. company. So yeah. just, just considering that, I was just curious, did did you meet those guys no. being on Geffen? And did, did, no, I didn't. Okay. I, I, unfortunately, I didn't. I did meet the guys in Guns N' Roses. Great guys. Slash is one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Became really good friends with the guys in Tesla. Um, but how but simple, no, how I never was met them in Geffen? How well, I mean, it's that? all the, in the same building. I mean, okay. it wasn't like they separated. It was just a different different branch. Or, yeah. yeah, it was a different branch because the company got so overwhelmingly big. Yeah. All right, so one more question about Want Some. That's, I've, I've always wondered this. Two-part question. Of Whose course. decision was it to put Squeezebox on the album? And do you guys pay a one-time fee for that? Or does Daltrey and Townsend get a cut of every album sold? Well, no, re- no royalty goes to us for that song whatsoever. I mean... Anytime that's played, anytime I mean, they wrote the song, they get the they get the right. performance royalties, so they're gonna get that. Um, I'm sh- I think Geffen probably had to call for permission to do the the rec- to the the song. I never want to do it. Is that My right? My cousin Ronnie Knight came up to us and said, "Hey, we should do Squeeze Box by the Who," and I'm like, "Oh God, no." But we just played it one day at practice to do it, and it sounded pretty good. And I was like, and we kind of put our own twist to it. And what's weird is I have a lot of people throughout the years that that maybe didn't even know that was a well, yeah, they didn't put two and two together. They never, but they, but they really liked our version. And what's weird, I was this is crazy, and but I was sitting at the Rainbow one night, and I was sitting with uh, Rachel Bolin and Snake. And and Matt Sorn, and we're just hanging out in Scotty T. And I turn around, and I my friend Lisa, who lived here in Memphis, who used to date Joe Walsh, she was married to John Entwistle, and they're in the booth behind me. And I hear somebody go, Todd, 
And I turn around, it's Lisa. And I'm like, whoa, you know? So there's John Antwistle sitting right there. And so I just I felt the need. I was like, hey, man, how you doing? She introduced me, and he was real quiet. She's like, hey, man. I was like, dude, I got to tell you, dude, I'm out here doing a record, and uh, we're doing a cover of Squeeze Box. <laughs> it's like I wanted his permission, even though we already <laughs> got it. But he was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I mean, that's it. I mean, he didn't talk that much, and... I didn't really give a crap really who he was, but it's like one of those things where you just, you know who he is. So the automatic respect comes in. So I got to the point, I really wasn't starstruck. You know, I hung out with a lot of people, but dude, I mean, it was just, you almost like surreal. You're sitting there, it's like the night before we, me and Scotty T were supposed to go to the rainbow one night. We were getting ready. I was in the shower. He was out in the back, out in the, sitting on the bed playing guitar, and I started singing an idea I had called Nobody Knows. And I just started singing. And while I was singing, he picked it out on guitar out there. I got out of the shower, and he goes, hey, dude, sing that song again. And I sang it. We worked for two and a half hours or more on that song. We finished it. Went to the rainbow. It was closing down about, about an hour left. Nobody hardly in there except Sam Kennison. And about two people. <laughs> what more do you need, Todd? Crazy and <laughs> fucked up. And he sees me and Scotty sitting over there. We're the only other two people. And he comes over and sits down at the table and buys us a Jack and Coke. And we're sitting looking right at him. And he was just talking. Yo, man, dude, dude, dude. And we're just sitting. He told me, you move over here. And he's sitting on one side. And we sit the other. And... Me and Scotty were just like, wow. And then I think he died like a month later. Dude. That's that's starstruck, man. That's weird. able to sit there with Sam Kennison. That's weird shit, dude. I mean, that is, so every time I do awesome. Nobody Knows or you know or whatever, that's all I can think about. And, me, and I remember me is and Scotty right? talking about, oh, yeah, man. I mean, because think about the lyrics of that song, and then two hours after or an hour after we wrote it, if not 30 minutes after we wrote it, we walk across the street to the Rainbow, and we're sitting in there with Sam Kennison. And we just wrote this song that, so when we went to record it, 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 had, it had a little bit different meaning to it when I sang it. I mean, it was like, I wanted to really, if you really listen to it, I mean, I really brought it in, man. And it just made me think of that. Even though he was still alive when we cut it. But he, he died right after that, I believe. He wasn't long after that. Was it's he? funny you say that about nobody knows. I, I, you know, I feel like even even us, even the three of us, and, and, and maybe the general public, people talk about times are changing. That's kind of the default. Times are changing. You know, that's a, what an incredible ballad. Well, that's what you tie Roxy Blue with. It, it, you know, it with is. It. But if you, but it's it's. I mean, you think about there's boy, that was a that was a dangerous duo on that. That album was an add-on. You, you have that was not a song that was that was we I mean, had the record was set. And me and Scotty just happened to write it. You know what I mean? And they said, knows. dude, we've got to put it on the record. And I mean, that's, boy, that's... I just hate the song we got. That's equally as good it's, it's as times are changing. Nobody knows. I mean, that's an incredible battle. Yeah. So, yeah. hey, are we live? We're live. We can, if you, if you want to meet up some other time, we can part two. We can do a part Can we two. do a part two? Yeah. Because I got so much that I want to talk about. Yeah. Can we, I mean, I, I can you, ramble. I can, tell what, we can do, I can tell what we can do, Todd, man. We can do Roxy part one. 
stuff. We got a lot of stuff we want to talk I to you know, about. I know, and you know what? Because we got all your stuff. You Zeke, got Logan, Zeke Logan actually taught me this. My first interview was Zeke Logan when he was with Rob Three. Mm-hmm. He was, yeah, he was like, dude, that's your interview sucked. Because I was a question answer guy. He asked me a question. I go, yeah. So he gave me a tape of Ted Nugent. And he said, go home and listen to this and then come back and bring me my cassette back and, and then tell me what you learned. And what I learned was if somebody asked you a question, never answer it by yes or no. Answer it with go, the story. And as y'all know, I don't. I mean, if you ask me a question, <laughs> well, and I, I just well, answered I about seven of them. 30 so. minutes later. I tell you y'all what, great questions I tell you what we'll do. We'll, 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 have, we'll have you back for a part two, but... I since, can do it anytime you want. Since this is going to air, we're going to drop it tomorrow afternoon. Real quick, I want to cover the Brett Mi- Just tell everybody about the Brett Michaels oh, yeah, concert yeah, yeah. and tell everybody about Under the Radar. Okay. Um, October 28th uh, coming up. Uh, it's Rock 103's 40th anniversary uh, concert. And Jim Green it was able to do this. So it's going to be Brett Michaels. Uh, Tora Tora, Roxy Blue, Every Mother's Nightmare, and Under the Radar. And Under the Radar is uh, is a fantastic little band that I manage and mentor. Um, they're 13, 14 years old, and they have a new record coming out. Um, hopefully it'll be out by that show. Uh, the single actually airs soon and I'll make sure you guys get the, okay. the single. Okay, we'll put it on our website. Yeah, uh, in fact, I'll probably go ahead and email you guys the, the master and y'all can go ahead and do okay. that. But you have to wait till after the first. Okay. But uh, I gotta tell you, these little kids are going to absolutely blow up. They're amazing. Uh, they really are and everybody's gonna be blown away by their record and I'm very proud to be a part of it and they're really good kids. So I think they're, they're gonna be a band that you need to be checking out really soon they're called under the radar and i'm i can get them to do an interview with you guys we'd love that 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 would be amazing deal um and so i just and we'll talk about this more on the next interview too um but uh roxy blue is actually going to be putting together a new cd brand new fresh it's Wayne Sweeney from Saliva, which we're going to talk more about Saliva on the next one. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, look, there's no way you're going to get m- m- what I've done in one interview unless we're going to sit here for the next four hours. So we'll, we got plenty. We might have to do a one, two, and three. We're for, for, Whatever for you us, need. buddy. But uh, Wayne Sweeney, uh, Scotty T, Josh Wild, Todd Poole, Roxy Blue, we're gonna start trying to get out and play more and trying to give our fans. So is is that is that the first time you've said that publicly that we're that you're actually gonna... this is the yeah I think so that okay. this is actually gonna be the uh, the deal you know uh, I've got an interview with Rock 103 with Katrina but you guys got it first so awesome. the this Honor. is it's the original lineup and I know people are gonna ask questions about Sid but Sid and me are still buddies but he's just not in that place now he's a dentist and he's just you know Sid's a perfectionist and he just didn't have time to be that guy anymore and so but the new Roxy is still gonna sound I mean we sound awesome we're a little heavier but it's the stuff sounds amazing I mean we still to me I think we're 
as good or better than we've ever been. So I'm, I'm excited. And yes, I will be taking flight at the show. So, <laughs> well, you have anything? Yeah. Well, I just want to say, if if I mean, I know you were we're going to do a part two. I'll do a part two next if, week. If, if you wouldn't mind, if you wouldn't mind, could we do maybe a Roxy song this week and the next time we have you out, we maybe you can play something from whatever you choose, whether it be. Yeah, you may do one now. Yeah, we're, we're gonna we're gonna end the podcast and then we're gonna. Uh, Record video you play. Oh, we're not we're doing put, it on during. The, yeah, we're gonna put okay, it. We're gonna okay, put it separately sorry. on our YouTube channel and link them all up and our um, and we'll have that up and then like I said, we'll do part two. We'll do part three if we need to. This has been Man, this has been fascinating. And I just want to tell you guys that that I'm very comfortable and you guys are awesome and I love the questions and I enjoy kind of for kind of spilling the beans about my life. It you know it, it kind of. It's so comfortable. We're just kind of hanging out. We're sitting around and we're right. talking. And and I've got tons of stories, man. And I, you know, it's 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 just overwhelming to me. You know, it brings back a lot of memories. Um, you know, we talk about Janie and um, yeah, we definitely want to get to that at some point. I got a lot of things to talk about. You know, I mean, uh, even uh, Shannon Hoon. I mean, yeah. What's the connection? A, I know that's a, a we. No, it's a real quick connection. I mean, it's like uh, he was supposed to sing on the record, and uh, I, I met up with him through you know Mike Clink and them. They, they hooked me up with him and uh, went out with him one night, and me and him had a great connection. But he probably is was one of the craziest people I've ever met. I mean, literally. Sweetheart of a guy, but just did things that would make you go. That soup up. record, man. Yeah, I mean, I got lots. I mean, I, we ain't even really talked about a lot of my my Motley stories, and I got tons. So you know, uh, I could sit here with you guys all night. I have a prior. I mean, another engagement oh, no, yeah, I have yeah, to we'll, do, but. Uh, we'll, we're gonna but I mean, happen. all y'all have to do is call me and and just tell me what day you want me to be here, and we'll just do part two, and if we'll get what we got to get done, and uh, and if we have to go to a part three, we'll do a part three, and we'll just make it happen, maybe make a freaking DVD out of it. <laughs> That'd be awesome. But I thank you to all you guys out no, there. Dude, it's our pleasure. Thanks for liking Roxy Blue, time. and we're gonna we're gonna come out with a new record, and hopefully. Uh, uh, Hopefully, some you guys can catch us out playing live soon. But uh, October 28th at Bank Plus Amphitheater, Snowden Grove in South Haven, Mississippi. It's going to be a party. Hey, and, and guys, any guys, girls, anybody listening to this, go see these guys. Uh, man, I saw these guys, and then we'll talk about this in part two. I saw I saw Todd and the boys back in back at Mud Island Amphitheater. I guess it was around 92, 92 or so. Yeah. I've seen the. I saw these guys last year when they got together and they played for um, Patrick Francis of Tour Tour's benefit. Oh yeah, man. these guys kill. Go see these guys, man. It's it's live music. They're a great, great live band. Don't pass up live music. Don't pass up seeing a great live band. See these guys open for Brett Michaels. That's all I got to say, man. Man, so, that is awesome. You said that, and you know how I many. You know how many people are probably married right now because they came to a Roxy show back in the day? <laughs> All right. right Speaking on, of man. a Roxy show. You know how many people are probably divorced, too? <laughs> the, the jacket that you... This is a kind of a it. fun fact question. The jacket <laughs> that you wore when we saw you guys it's at the, the Tora Tora Benefit, is that the same jacket yeah. you wore back in the day? Yeah. 
Man, I thought That's why it I was. had a long shirt on because it's a little short on me. <laughs> that yeah, is killer that you I still might, have you know, that. I, I might, depending on the weather that night, I might, I might bring it out. You know? <laughs> All right, so we want to thank Caitlin for joining us uh, this yes, week. Yes, thanks. And, yeah, and thank you, Todd so much. All right, so we're going to have a lot of new listeners this week because uh, obviously of this interview with Todd, and I was on Decibel Geek, and I actually talked about Roxy Blue on Decibel Geek. So if you're new to us, go to Twitter and follow us at Digital Killed. Subscribe via iTunes and SoundCloud. Also, our YouTube channel, Digital Killed the Radio Star. We're going to have some exclusive content on that up um, this afternoon. And Instagram, Digital Killed the Radio Star. And if we don't, hopefully we're going to get part two before the Brett Michael Show. But please. Oh, yeah, we can. Yeah, go get go to, to the Brett Michael Show in South Haven if you're uh, in the uh, Mid-South area. Uh, uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of If fun. you're in the Cleveland area, come yeah, on. Yeah, if you're in the Cleveland area. <laughs> oh, we got a lot of people coming from out of town. Let me tell you something. It's, uh, and just to let everybody know real quick, it, it is there's a lot of tickets that are gone. I mean, there's probably some left. But the beauty of it is, is because it's Rock 103's 40th anniversary, they have lawn tickets right now. There's not a bad seat in the house. And I think those tickets, in, because of the 40th anniversary, are like $10.30. And you're going to get to see Brett Michaels, Tour Tour, Roxy Blue, Every Mother's Nightmare, and Under the Radar. You're not going to be able to see a show like that. It's going to be historic. You've got to come to the show. So I plan on seeing everybody there. So if you heard this, you're listening to this interview and you hear me, when you come to the show, Make sure you come to the front of the stage and get my attention and let me know that you heard me on the radio. All right, guys. Uh, once again, thank you to Kate and Todd. This has been it's been fascinating. Uh, time has flown by. Ready for part two. Ready baby. for part two. Anyway, so follow us uh, on those sites and subscribe to us, and we'll talk to you next week.